This message was given by Matt Harama at Campus Fellowship's Fall Conference 2022. The theme of the conference was the greatest story ever told, a look at how the Bible is one coherent story. We hope you find this encouraging. I want to show you guys one more really crazy story in the life of Abraham, Abraham and the covenant, God's covenant with him. And I want to remind us that uh, we're going to do this before we get into the law here. So I don't actually have a slide for this going a little rogue here. That's okay. We got time. Um, you guys remember, God promised Abraham, Abram, that he would have many, 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 many children. And this was physically impossible. Because they were just old. But God said, no, it's going to happen. There's going to be this miraculous event. Your super old wife, you're going to have a baby. You're going to be 100 years old and you're going to have a kid. And that's going to be the one I'm going to bless. And it happened. It happened. They were amazed. They glorified God. This, this baby, this promised offspring, we worked for it. We tried to do it on our own and that didn't happen. I have no other children. We've got this promise from God that there's going to be offspring as numerous as the stars that come from my own line. And we finally, at age 100, we have a son, Isaac. And there's this super crazy story in Genesis 22. Turn there with me. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, who you love. Your only son, who you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What was Abraham's response? Uh, no. Nope. No. Not going to do that. I'm not going to burn my son to death on a mountain. Nope. That wasn't his response. By this time in his life, Abraham believed God. So Abraham got up early in the morning saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac and he split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and then Abraham said to his young men stay here at the donkey the boy and I will go over there to worship and then I will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac made him carry wood on his back. Walked up the hill, fire in the night. Isaac spoke to his father. He said, um, my father, look the way the Bible speaks. Uh, my father? And he replied, yes, here I am, my son. Isaac said, um, dad, well, the fire and the wood are here. <laughs> um, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, you can only imagine choking back tears. God himself will provide a land for our talk. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Here, uh, Isaac, give me your name. What? What are you doing, Dad? He bound his feet together. It's just like, can you imagine if, like, seeing 
What are you doing, Dad? Oh, you're picking me up and down by the woods. <laughs> what are we doing, Dad? And Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, yep. Grateful for the opportunity to pause. Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering. And he named that place the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. What's going on here? passage goes on to say, now I know that you believe me, as if God didn't know that before. What's going on here? Is that now all the rest of us see the change? We know two things. One is that the faith that Abraham had made him righteous was real. So real that Hebrews said, believing hope against hope that God would provide. Abraham was willing to sacrifice this promised son through whom he was reasoning. That's where all the multitude, the starry host multitude of sons and daughters and kings are going to come from. And God said, I want you to kill him. And instead of saying, no, this one's mine, I get to keep it. Because that's how you're going to fulfill your promise. Abraham reasoned, well, it's not Isaac. It's someone else. I, I listen to God. Another thing that we see here is that God doesn't actually ever ask you to murder children. <laughs> the most important thing we see is that God is not asking Abraham to do something that he himself is not willing to do. Placing wood back of your only son who you love, making him walk in front of him for four seconds. Beautiful foreshadow. We're going to move on to the next series of covenants. I want to start here. Those of you who are familiar with the Bible, this is something else, again, I asked my wife, Nancy, in preparing for this. Have you ever given any thought to the context into which Genesis was written? When was Genesis written? When, whenever we're interpreting the Bible, uh, whenever you're trying to understand the Bible, what does this book of the Bible or what does this passage mean? You need to ask a few questions. The first thing you need to understand is who wrote it. You understand that Moses wrote Genesis. Who wrote it? When did they write it? To who and why or what was the occasion on which they wrote it? So who wrote it, when, to who, and why did they write it? We need to understand that about Genesis. When was Genesis written? I think a lot of us have in our minds by default, when we are reading the Bible, that it's like we're pushing play on a video player or some sort of a streaming device or something. And we're watching a movie of the events as they unfold. That's not exactly the way the Bible works. The way the Bible works is that you have a human author under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit who is framing up a story to make a point for people. It's a true story. It's an accurate accounting 
of the facts as they unfolded. But do we have Genesis because God needed us to have an understanding of where the world came from, an accurate understanding of how the world was created? Is that why we have Genesis? And I'm going to say, maybe controversially, and you can talk about this with your pastors when you get home, I'm going to say, if that is the case, why do we have so little detail about exactly how the world was made? And the details that we do have really are difficult to fit with, oh, I don't know, physics. Like, how, do, how are there plants before there is sun to grow them? And my point is not that Genesis, the creation, didn't happen this way. My point is that the reason that Moses wrote Genesis was not to give us a very accurate, detailed, scientific understanding of the origin of the earth. What we do need to know about the story of creation is that God created it from nothing in seven days. Details that we do not have are the exact physical processes that he used in creation. We just need to know that he spoke it into existence. We do not know why there is light separate from the dark prior to there being sun, moon, and stars. We don't need to know that. It doesn't tell us how it works. We don't need to know how plants were created and grow prior to the sun. Nourishing them what I'm trying to say is that Moses wrote Genesis for a specific reason, and he wrote it to the Israelites during the Exodus, the part of the story that we are just now getting to. That's why Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis and the details that we have here as a covenant prologue to the old covenant. Why does God have the right to make this deal with us, Israelites? The answer is... Because he created everything, including you and me, from nothing by the word of his power. And we rebelled against him and wound up in slavery in Egypt. And he saved us from that. That's the prologue to the Old Covenant. Everything we've read so far is the prologue. It's a reminder of God's great deeds, his great love, his great mercy, and his great power, and an explanation of God's requirements for us. That's going to save you a lot of headache in arguing in college with people who are trying to prove to you that creationism is not true and naturalistic evolution is, because you don't need to argue the science. You need to argue that there is a God who created everything from nothing. And in fact, Hebrews says, by faith, we believe that God created everything that exists from nothing. You don't need to argue redshift. You don't need to argue radiocarbon dating. You need to argue that there is a God. How do we know? Because Jesus said so, and he rose from the dead. It's going to save you a lot of headache. Take every debate about evolution versus creationism and get as quickly to the cross and the resurrection as possible. It's the ultimate judo move they want no one to do. Here's another thing you're going to hear in college and in your classrooms if you go to a secular university and take any religion classes. You're going to hear that Genesis is just copying all these other older religions in its mythologies. 
Also not true. Of course a preacher's going to say that that's not true. But here's the argument. They're going to say they copied from um, the from the sun god Ra, the story of the sun god Ra. They're going to say that they copied from the, there's this tome called the Enuma Elish, the Gilgamesh epic. And if you read those, those are older texts. And they describe a global flood. And they describe a most high God creating things. And that's where Moses got all these silly ideas. No, the Enuma Elish got its silly ideas from the actual thing that happened that Moses is describing thousands of years later and finally writing down. What's weird about the way Moses writes it is that Moses does not, in fact, take cues from the religious systems of the ancient Near East. None of the stuff we're seeing about what God is doing with man matches and comes anywhere close to the religious mythologies of the ancient Near East. What it does come close to is the politics of the ancient Near East. Judaism and Christianity, the Old Testament, what we see here, people would have recognized as not a creation myth, but as a political covenant. Judaism and Christianity, and I'd say just Christianity, in the modern day, has the only religious system where God claims to have a personal claim and a personal relationship with his creatures and wants them to have a personal relationship with him. And in fact, he's saying through all of these covenants, not I'm some way high mythological God out here that's doing random and crazy things. In fact, he's saying, I am your king. And I have the right to be your king. No other religion is that. Islam comes close, but Islam only comes close because it's an offshoot from Christianity in the 700s AD. Islam came out of a, a Christian context. Actually, it came out of some very, uh, very prominent Christian heresies at the time. And I think there was some demonic intervention. I think there really was a spiritual being that showed up to Muhammad and claimed to be the angel Gabriel and revealed a lot of things to him that got put into the Quran. I think that actually happened. I just don't think it was actually the angel Gabriel, but a demon claiming to be the angel Gabriel because he gave another gospel other than the one the apostle Paul definitively delivered. What are you supposed to do with even angelic messengers who give you another gospel? You're supposed to say, yeah, you're a curse. So when Muhammad asked his uncle, I think I just had a revelation from the angel Gabriel, Muhammad's uncle, who was a Christian priest at the time in the 700 AD, didn't know his Bible. And so what he should have told this young Muhammad was, don't listen to what instead happened was, told that and ask him for some more. That's where Islam came. My point, Christianity, the scriptures did not copy from any other religious text. They're the original. And they're fundamentally different character. They're a political character. Personal relationship between God and God. All the other mythologists describe just really weird things that happen. The essential covenant, as I've been talking about, that the Bible uses is this idea of a rescue from a greater king to lesser kings. Rescue treatment. So that's where we are. Genesis is a covenant prologue. Open up Exodus chapter 1. 
Let me give you the context into which this covenant was made. Oh, there, look at that. Probably going to be way hotter up the mic now, sorry. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6. Joseph and all his brothers, and all that generation eventually died. But the Israelites were fruitful. They increased rapidly. They multiplied and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them in Egypt. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt, and he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they're going to multiply further, and when war breaks out, they'll join with our enemies, fight us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters of the Israelites to oppress them and forced uh, with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses, supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work. That's the context. The context for Adam and Eve, the context for the covenant with Adam was chaos and disorder and emptiness. And I brought you out of the chaos and the dirt. The context with Noah was the flood and, and pervasive wickedness across the entire planet. God said, I brought you out of the flood. The context with Abraham was a nation full of pagan moon worshippers and the Tower of Babel and oppressive systems enslaving people. And God said, I brought you out of the land of Ur. To Egypt, or to the Israelites, he's going to say, let's flip over to Exodus 19. He's going to say, I brought you out of Egypt. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, this is verse 4. How I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the people. Although the whole earth is mine. You will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. What is the implications of a kingdom of priests? What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people. So this nation of Israel is going to represent God to all the rest of the earth. And then he goes on and he describes for the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, part of Deuteronomy, he describes this intricate system of laws and requirements summed up in the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are among them, but there's actually 613 laws listed in the Mosaic Covenant. Have you ever wished, have you ever wished that God would just write down for you in black and white exactly what he wants you to do? Wouldn't that be awesome? God would just write down in black and white exactly what he wants us to do so that you could objectively see it and be able to objectively do it and know that you're in or you're out doing the thing or not. Well, the Israelites had this. They had the perfect system of laws. Adam and Eve, they had the perfect paradise. Noah had paradise plus steak. Abraham, I'm just going to keep saying that. I think it's hilarious. Abraham had the perfect promise. It was one-sided promise. The Israelites had the perfect law of God. 
I'm not going to read you the entire law. That would take an extremely long time. Let's go to Deuteronomy 28. And I want you to look at chapter 28 in your Bible. I want you to look at it for me. I'm not going to read it. But we have in Deuteronomy 28 is we have all of the consequences of the deal. If you obey me, here's what's going to happen. If you keep the law, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed. Your land's produce will be blessed. The offspring of your livestock will be blessed, including your the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in. You'll be blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated. They will march against you from one direction, but flee in seven. The Lord will grant you a blessing on your barns and everything you do. He will bless you in the land the Lord has sworn to give you. He will establish you as his holy people as he swore to you. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, then all the people of the earth will see that you bear the Lord's name and they will stand in awe of you. The Lord will make you prosper abundantly in your with offspring, the offspring of your livestock and your land's produce and the land the, the Lord swore to your ancestors to give you the Lord will be the Lord will, the Lord will open for you his abundant storehouse this sky and give you rain in its season. No more droughts. You will lend to many nations, but you will not bow and make you head, not the tail. You will move upward and never downward. If you listen to the Lord's command that I give you today and are careful to follow them, do not turn aside to the right or the left in the things I am commanding you to do. And then disobey. Curse be cursed in the city, cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed. Your land's produce, your, the young of your herds, the newborns of your flock, you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. And I'm not going to even read the rest. There's too many. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And turn to chapter 30. When all these things happen to you, not if... blessings and the curses. God knows what they're going to do. We can guess by this point in the story how this is going to go down. So he gives them a promise in chapter 30. When these things happen to you, the blessing and the curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in your nations where the Lord your God has driven you, you and your and you and your children return to the Lord and obey him with all your heart and soul by doing everything I'm commanding you today, then he will restore your fortunes. He will have compassion on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if you are exiles to the farthest horizon, he will gather you and bring you there. Promise, blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience, and redemption for repentance. I'll tell you that chapter 31 through 4 never happened. All the curses happened. There were a few individuals who were who were chosen by grace as a remnant who were spared so that the Messiah could come. The general structure of God's deal, lessons for obedience, curses for disobedience, restoration for repentance. Here's heard the term, the prosperity gospel. The idea that if you obey God, 
if you obey his commands and you believe hard enough, you're going to get your wildest dreams. Everything's going to be great. It comes from here. There is a sense in which the prosperity gospel is partially correct. God did promise blessing for obedience, but the message of the entire Bible is no one obeyed. Everyone needed rescue through repentance. What's the covenant prologue here for the Mosaic covenant? The prologue is, I brought you out of Egypt. What are the grants? Well, grant, God promises to be with them. By the way, in Moses, I didn't get to this in the text, but he promises to be with them. He goes with them in the tabernacle. Cloud of smoke by day, or clouds by day, pillar of fire by night. He goes with them in the tabernacle. He gives them a name. It says, my name, a holy nation. He gives them a place, the land of Canaan, the promised land. He gives them a people, all the offspring of Jacob, the 12 tribes. He gives them a king, God, as king over a kingdom of priests. He gives them a global impact as those priests speaking Blessing to all the nations. God is going to bless all the nations. What are the obligations of this covenant? This covenant is not one-sided. This covenant, you have an obligation to obey the law. Consequences are curse and exile for disobedience. Let's go back to the chart for a second. We have Adam and Noah. Now we've got Abraham, the children of Abraham, that are going to be included. And now we add the covenant with Moses. Within the children of Abraham, God makes the covenant with the 12 tribes of Israel, which are a subset of the children of Abraham. Not every, not all who are children of Abraham are in this covenant because you also have Ishmael, right? All of his people. And no longer is it going to be all the children of Abraham, all the children of Abraham who are a light to the nations. It's a very specific nation of Israel, the covenant with Moses, who are the light to the nations. So let's ask, how did that go for them? You notice that the Nazareth is here. Well, the book of Judges is intended to answer that question. How did the Israelites do? Not a very pretty picture. Let's go to Judges chapter 2, verse 10. They got into the promised land. They didn't quite follow through on all of God's requirements. And then... Joshua goes into the promised land with his generation. They start to settle in. Verse 10, that whole generation was gathered to their ancestors. And after them rose another generation who did not know the Lord and the works he had done for Israel. We're never more than one generation away from losing all of this. I will say the church will never be stamped out. Your particular church might be. Your particular campus fellowship Within a generation, Joshua and his generation failed to pass on the testimony. Verse 11, the Israelites did, surprise, what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshipped the Baals, the false gods. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them, and they angered the Lord. That's how it went. Within a generation... For Adam and Eve, I don't know, it was the next chapter. It was, you know, chapter two, everything was created. Chapter three, they rebelled. 
for Noah, chapter 9, they were rescued from the flood and came out of the ark. And chapter 9, they rebelled. Didn't take long. How did it go? Israelites, in a generation, they rebelled. But still, God does not abandon. Down at verse 16. The Lord raises up judges who saved them from the power of the marauders. Because these curses were coming on them. They were they got overrun by the different nations, by the marauders invading the promised land. They got overrun by it. But what did the Lord do? He didn't let them just get wiped out. That was the, that would have been the just punishment. What does he do instead? The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of the marauders. They did, but they did not listen to the judges. They didn't listen to the people who were saving them. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned away into the way of their ancestors who walked in a, from the way. They quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who walked in obedience to the Lord's command. They did not do as their ancestors did. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies while that judge was still alive. The Lord was moved to pity whenever the Israelites groaned because of those who were oppressing and afflicted them. Whenever the judge died, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their ancestors did, following other gods to serve them and bow to them in worship. And they did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. The judgment on the earth at the time of Noah was all, every thought and intention of their heart was nothing but evil all day. The judgment at the time of the judges was they did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. So that comes in. It's about ready to bring in the next phase of this covenant. And in the context, flip over to Judges chapter 21. It's the very end of the book of Judges. Last verse of the book of Judges. Here's the summary of the book of Judges. 25, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. <sighs> and into that, the last days, the last judge was a prophet named Samuel. Flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Eventually, Israel got tired of repeatedly being crushed by all of these invading marauders. They apparently failed to notice the judge that God would raise up and deliver them. And instead what they said was, you know, we need, we need a king just like all of those other nations that are invading us. We need a king we can see, one we can touch, one we can like manipulate and bribe and court the favor of. We need a human king. Eventually they demand a king from Samuel, just like all the other nations. One who is going to, quote, keep them safe because apparently they either didn't notice or didn't care that God was actually doing that for them. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 6. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered the demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, you know what? Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They're doing the same thing that they've done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this very day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them. But... Solemnly, solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. You think having a king is great? Uh, have you guys had a king before? Oh, wait, no, you haven't. Let me tell you what kings are like. So Samuel, verse 10, told all the Lord's words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights of a king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his use and 
put them to his use in chariots, on his horses, or running in front of the chariots. He can appoint them for his use as commanders of thousands or commanders of fifties to, to plow his ground or reap his harvest or to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. So basically, he's going to take your sons from you. They're not going to work with you anymore. They're going to go work for the king. 13, he's going to take your daughters to become perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He doesn't mention concubines at this point. It's also going to happen. He's going to take your sons out of your home, put them to his use. He's going to take your daughters out of his home and put them to his use. He can take your best fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards, and give them to his servants. And he can take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officials and his servants. He can take your male servants. He can take your female servants. He can take your best cattle. He can take your donkeys and use them for his work. He can take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. And when that day comes, you're going to cry out to me because the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day, said Samuel. I don't think that's a word from the Lord. I think Samuel was just angry. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, we must have a king. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. What a fascinating episode. Samuel's like, you sure you want a king? It's going to be terrible. And they're like, yeah, give us a king. They, only, they were only thinking of one feature. Whenever you think of only one feature, you're only trying to solve one problem in your entire life, and you devote all of your effort to focusing on this one problem, you're going to forget about all the rest. They weren't thinking of the big picture. But that's what happens. God says, give them what they're asking for, because it's going to teach them something very important. So they appoint a very impressive man named Saul. It says there's no one more impressive in the nation than Saul. And actually, things go well for a few years, and people are like, yeah, see? But then Saul, like kings do, gets full of himself and he oversteps his boundaries. And there's this really weird thing about him offering a sacrifice. What's happening is going on is kings were supposed to do one thing. Priests were supposed to do another. Saul says, I'm king. I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty great. I'm going to do the priest thing too. And so God rejects him and instead appoints David as king. And that whole thing with David as king is like my favorite story in the entire Bible. Let me skip it. Go to 2 Samuel. <laughs> Chapter 7. <laughs> David ends up being a pretty faithful dude. In fact, the New Testament's judgment back on David is, did all the Lord's command, except in that whole thing with Bathsheba. If you don't know that story, we'll talk later. Verse 8. This is God making his covenant now with King David. So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of Armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you. There's the name, like all the greatest of the earth. I will designate a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them there so that they may live there and not be disturbed ever again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people, Israel. I will give you rest. There's a new feature. Rest from all your enemies. Promised rest. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house. There's people for you. When your time comes to rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your descendant. There's people again who will come from your body. Sounds familiar. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What? His throne forever. 
I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and a kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. A few verses later, verse 19, the global impact. What you have done so far was a little thing for you, Lord, for you have spoken about your servant's house in the distant future, and this is a revelation for mankind. For a charter, the word Hebrew revelation also means charter or the way for mankind. This is going to be for all mankind. Let's look at the structure here. What's the prologue? Chapter 7, verse 8. I took you out of the pastures. Brought you out of the pastures where you were just a lowly shepherd boy tending the flock. And I've been with you this whole time. That's the prologue. That's why I have the right to make this what are the grants? I will be with you. I will make your name great. That's the name, a place, the land, Canaan, the place they were in. I'm going to keep this place safe. It's not going to be marauded anymore. Who are the people? The Jews. Who's the king? Well, now this changes. Previously, it was man under God or God as king. Now it is a promised anointed one or a promised Messiah, promised king, who is going to be one of David's sons and is somehow going to sit on the throne forever. Huh? What are the obligations to this covenant? None. I will do this. Another one-sided covenant. This, by the way, this is a subset of the Mosaic Law. So let's look at the chart again. This is a series of promises for the line of David within the Mosaic Covenant. That's why I drew the chart this way. In order to bless all mankind, the king, who, the promised coming king, the son of David, the eternal ruler on an eternal throne will bless all mankind. Those of you who know how this story ends, see where this is going. There's a weird little verse here in verse 14, 2 Samuel 7, 14. When he sins, I will discipline him with blows for mortals. But we all know that Jesus didn't sin. But he was disciplined with blows for mortals. What happened there? This is our first hint at something that's called imputed righteousness. And we will talk about that tonight. Because the other side of imputed righteousness for us is imputed guilt onto Jesus. Jesus didn't actually sin, but God placed the sin of mankind on him and disciplined him. It's a little prophetic hint here in 2 Samuel 7. This law, this covenant that God set up with Moses and with David, teaches us some very interesting things. It's very important things. It teaches us, it's going to sound weird to your ears, I hope, but it teaches us that heaven has to be earned. The law teaches us that heaven has to be earned. 
that in order to be with God, you have to be sinless. The whole system of the laws were about purification for uncleanness and atonement and payment for sin. In order to be with God, you have to pay for your sin. So you earn heaven. But it also teaches us two other things. One is that every inclination of our heart is toward is only toward evil from our youth. That's a big problem. It also teaches us that as a race, we continually fall into this pattern of rebellion. That's a big problem. So what does it teach us? It teaches us that you have to be sinless in order to be with God. Heaven has to be earned, but none of us earn it, and none of us are sinless. There's a big, big problem. How did this go for them? How did this old covenant go for them? Well, the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, you flip through and, and hold your fingers from the second Samuel all the way to Malachi. This part of the book is written to consistently call back law-breaking Israel to the covenant. One way to describe the prophets, which is most of the rest of the Old Testament here, a label for them could be something like covenant enforcers. Hey, we're straying from the covenant. We've strayed from the covenant. Judgment is coming. Turn back before it's too late. God, in his deep, rich mercy, this is one of the things we learned about God, rather than wiping out lawbreakers the day they sin, like they deserved, like you promised Adam and Eve would happen, the day you eat of that tree, the day you transgress the commandment, you will surely die. He's instead merciful. And he continually calls them to turn, repent before it's too late, be with me. He continually points out their failure to thrive as they sin. Look, you're suffering. You're suffering in your sin. Come, live as kings and queens under God. Thrive, flourish, rule, carry out your rule and your kingship over this land like you should be. That's what all of God's commandments are about. They're not harsh. They're not fun killers. They're not a bummer. The thing God is asking you to do with purity of heart, with sexual purity, with love for people that are hard to love. All of the things that we go, ah, really, that's hard, Lord. I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to break up with this boyfriend or girlfriend that our relationship is immoral. I don't, I, I want to, I want to be loved. I want to run after these things. I, I don't want to have to, uh, to live a life for you. I want to pursue wealth and fame. That would be better. And God's saying, no, it won't. It will lead only to your destruction. The right life of thriving that you're actually looking for is found in me. He continually calls them back to be kings and queens under God, caring for and enjoying a land filled with fruit and abundance. But because of who we are after the fall, our propensity, our inclination towards sin, our continual demand to be the ones declaring good and evil rather than heeding our loving creator's definition of good and who we are. We operate outside of our design. We continually give ourselves to other gods, other bales. We devote ourselves to idolatry. We suffer the consequences and destruction as we fight amongst each other for dominance and our greed and our lust and our power. We want to do things our way. The Lord says, take your only son, the one you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. And we say, no. He's not. 
the wonderful thing about that story with Abram is when Abram said, okay, let's do it. You're commanding me, I'm going to do it. God lets him have the blessing in his Gives the both. The prophets and the rest of the Old Testament, they spent hundreds of years warning Israel to turn back before it's too late. God's grace period of warning and patience runs out. It's going to end. That's why my chart has that big black line at the end. There's judgment coming. The prophets continually call toward a coming judgment. You're going to lose the benefits of the kingdom. You're going to lose the land. You're going to lose the health. You're going to lose the prosperity. You're going to lose the protection. And they warn Israel right up until and even during this forewarned invading armies crushing the kingdom and taking away the land of Israel into captivity. That's how it goes for them. They fail continually, time after time, with just a few bright spots here and there. Josiah repents. For a little while, Solomon, David's son, has the glory days of the kingdom, and everybody does prosper. God proves that this is, this could happen, and this will happen. And he has amazing wealth and amazing riches. What happens? He turns aside, and he has a thousand concubines, a thousand prostitutes, a thousand other women he's sleeping with who turn his heart away from serving the living God. And in his later years, he becomes an idol worshiper, and everything falls apart. And with the exception of Hezekiah and Josiah, everyone's wicked. The book of Kings and Chronicles reads like a broken record. They turned away and walked in the wickedness just like their fathers did. The way of wickedness, they did not serve the Lord. And eventually, Israel, the Israelites are taken away into captivity. The temple is leveled in Israel. That's how it goes for them. So what, do we, what does the Old Covenant teach us about God? The Old Covenant teaches us that God's laws are good. They protect the weak and the vulnerable. It talks about caring for the land, honoring the honorable, providing for his, all of his creation, really, plants and animals and children and parents and grandparents, strangers and loved ones, foreigners and citizens, believers and unbelievers. We are to care for and help and love and serve all of them. That's what God's law is about. That's what God's commands are about, loving and serving and caring for all, everyone and everything in his creation, tending it, helping it to thrive and to flourish. His laws, his commandments, they're a blessing. They're a blessing. He says, be like me. That's what they are. That's what the old covenant teaches us about God. It teaches us that his mercy is unfathomably deep. And he provides rescue for the repentant and protection for his people. Ultimately, even in their rebellion, he provides them with protection. It tells us that God keeps his promises. He upholds his end of the bargain. And he comes through even when we are. It teaches us that his patience is vast. He gives warning after warning after warning. No one can have the excuse, God didn't give me a chance. He withholds the full consequences of sin for a long time, but he does not do that forever. He is a righteous God. The Old Covenant teaches us that he is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And injustice and sin and rebellion will be What do we learn about ourselves in the Old Covenant? What does the Old Covenant teach us about ourselves? 
Well, it teaches that even with God's black and white written down requirements, the answer key, we still rebel. We do not have the excuse that we don't know what he wants from us. We want to be the ones demanding right and wrong. No one can tell me what. Even under God's perfect political system, even with the right ruler, a benevolent king, David, and later Solomon, we still rebel and desire to be king for ourselves. That's what it teaches us. It teaches us that every human king is fallible. We will never be able to appoint a perfect human political ruler who will finally rescue us from all of our problems. Don't believe any political campaign ever from any side. They're not going to solve the ultimate problem. Some might withhold the curse better than others for a little while. That's how politics works. Some might be able to restrain the curse from having its full effect a little better than others. But nobody's going to come through on their messianic promises that every political campaign consists of. When you hear a politician saying, hey, there's really like, there's this big problem and we just need to do the best we can to work with what we've got. Then you start listening to that person. One who admits their inability to be the savior that we're all longing for. From Abram, we learn that God's promise to be with us, to be our God, and even to be our protection. So we learn that his perfect promise is not enough for us. We want to do this ourselves. We want to do this on our own. From Adam and Noah, we learn that even with God providing just a simple, we don't even need 613 laws. We just needed the one. We have a perfect paradise to live in. The way they describe Eden with, it, it, it goes into, like, there's rivers there, and there's gold, and there's uh, gems, and all these kind of really beautiful things. It's not saying, ha-ha, treasure. It's saying everything humans could possibly want to do their handiwork. Even in a perfect paradise for us to enjoy and cultivate. With only one no among a billion Yeses, an entire globe full of yeses and only one no. We want to do the one no because we want to be the ones defining good for people. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about, by the way. It's not like we ate this fruit and suddenly, oh, our eyes were open. No. That fruit was probably just like actual just fruit. But what it showed us was that we want to be the ones deciding good for evil. That's what Satan meant, the Satan meant. That's what God meant, too. They both said it. Now they, now they are like us, deciding good from evil. They're not taking my word for it anymore. They want to decide for themselves. That's the symbolic act of evil. That is a big, big, big problem. We have a problem. We have a problem that we can't overcome on our own. God's covenants are designed to bless his creation and to deal with the fundamental problem of our sinfulness, our self-centeredness, our pride, our greed, our faithlessness. Time and time again, generation after generation throughout human history, century after century, epoch after epoch, we have proved humans, fellow humans, we have proved our inability and our unwillingness to follow our creator wholeheartedly on our own. We need help. This is the message of the Bible so far. We need help. We need a rescue. 
rescued. We're unable to do this on our I'm really glad that the story is not done yet. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 31. This is sitting on the other side, right before exile, right before Israel is about to lose it all. After God has shown the fundamental human problem and it's coming to a head in the exile of his promised people from their promised land. Jeremiah says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them from by the hand and had led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will... One teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So tonight, this evening, we're going to look at God's establishing of the new covenant. How he worked through his son Jesus finally to deal with our sin problem after all. How he clears our guilt, clears our shame by forgiving our sin, how he gives us power to finally obey him, the power that we lack, the power to finally desire to follow him, the power to finally want to want him by giving us the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's pray. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.